Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 202. Today's big Bible question, when must Christians obey the government and when not? Hashtag masks. So hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Another weekend is nearly upon us. Today's podcast has me filled with, I don't know, a bit of fear and trembling because it delves into an area that, as a pastor, I specifically and intentionally have avoided for almost a decade, maybe actually a little longer than a decade. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't care about politics. I actually do care a great deal about politics, and I follow political news daily closely from a wide variety of sites. No, I don't read 40 different newspapers a day. And I would be honestly shocked and astonished if anybody, especially a pastor, did that, but I do try to keep up. That said, when I read the New Testament of the Bible, I see very little focus on politics, especially the advocacy of political candidates or anything remotely along those lines. Now, should Christians vote and be involved in politics? I believe so. But you'd kind of have a hard time coming up with a New Testament text that would clearly point you in that direction. So I sort of Uh, see that as a matter of uh, religious liberty. Should pastors and church leaders focus a large percentage of their time in the political arena? I honestly don't see anything in the Word of God that would seem to indicate a positive answer there. And thus it is that we tackle today's topic with a bit of trepidation. Our Bible passages include Joshua 24, Acts chapter 4, Jeremiah 13, in Matthew chapter 27. Most of these passages have a political or governmental slant. In Joshua 23 and 24, we will see a man who is, in my opinion, one of the greatest political leaders in the Bible and maybe in world history too, say his final farewells. As far as I'm concerned, Joshua is highly underrated, brave, godly, a strong leader, and he actually seemed to like the people he governed a little more than Moses did. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. There was also not a major Joshua sin scandal. You'd kind of be hard-pressed to find many major sins of Joshua recorded in Scripture. Not saying he was perfect, just pretty darn good guy. In Matthew 26 and 27, you see multiple terrible examples of government gone astray. The Jewish government, the Sanhedrin, was ostensibly supposed to represent God's leadership and commands in human form, and yet they were fools who had strayed light years away from the commands of God, So far away, they didn't even recognize God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, who was fully God, upon his visitation. They couldn't crucify him quickly enough. Even Jeremiah 13 focuses a little bit on the leaders of Jerusalem and how they've led people astray. It also contains this um, astounding illustration in which God tells Jeremiah to go buy some underwear, wear it for a while, then go bury it by the river and leave it for a long time, and then go back and find it much later and see how dirty and ruined it was. And no, I'm not making that up. None of those, however, are our focus passages, though. Instead, we turn to Acts chapter 4, in which we see a significant act of civil disobedience on behalf of the disciples of Jesus. So let's go read that passage and then discuss it. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. 
But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's... Hmm, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Doesn't sound that old to me. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assemble together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Consider their threats. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing authority of Jerusalem, has ordered the disciples in this passage uh, in no uncertain terms to stop preaching about Jesus. As you read, John and Peter pretty flatly tell them that they were going to listen to God's commands and not to the commands of the Sanhedrin, and they kept preaching about Jesus, as we see in the very next chapter, because Acts 5 verse 25 says, Someone came and reported to the Sanhedrin, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Sanhedrin, faced with this flagrant and public act of disobedience, want to put the disciples to death, but one of their number, named Gamaliel, persuades them otherwise, which leads to the apostles being severely flogged for preaching in the name of Jesus. In verse 29, Peter lays down a very important principle in terms of being the people of God under a godless or secular government. He says, We must obey God rather than people. Now, I believe that Peter is referring back to the great commission of Jesus in which the disciples were commanded to take the good news and the teachings of Jesus to every corner of the world. To have obeyed the commands of the authorities would mean disobeying Jesus. And that was not an option for these followers of Jesus, nor is it an option for us. When any government commands people to do something that would cause us to disobey a command of God, we must resist. Resist in the right way, of course, much like the disciples did here, but resist nonetheless. That principle stated and understood, if we keep reading the Bible, in fact, if we just keep reading until the very next book in the Bible, we will find some extremely clear and specific commands given to Christians in Romans 13 that we must obey. Let's read them. Romans 13, 1-7 says, Let everyone... Submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval." For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe owe tolls, Respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you are owe honor. So, this is one of the clearest scriptures in the Bible. And we would do well to remember that it is written to the Roman Christians living under a godless and pagan empire that had Jesus crucified and featured emperors who routinely claimed to be gods. Uh, read the words. 
Grapple with them. Read and reread Romans 13. Let them sink into you. Submit to the governing authority, says Paul. Now, Paul, why would we do this? They're evil and wrong on so many things. And Paul would say, maybe, because there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now, wait, surely not, Paul. Surely our current president or governor or leader isn't from God, right? There's no way. Surely our previous president or governor or leader wasn't from God. Was he, Paul? Yes, says Paul. The one who resists the authorities is opposing God's commands. Now, Paul, that's impossible. They're ordering us to do things that take away our freedom. And what's more, they're lying to us constantly. The government is God's servant, says Paul, and therefore you must submit, not only because they will punish you if not, but because of your conscience. No way, Paul. Are you kidding me? The government is God's servant? They're a joke, and they're so wrong on... And insert whatever issue you want there. Yes, says Paul, repeating himself in verse 6, the government is God's authority. Come on, Paul. They're requiring us to wear masks, and they're impinging on our freedom. They're causing all sorts of trouble. Surely you aren't commanding us to submit to the government, really? Yes, says Paul, in Titus 3.1, where he says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one. No one, Paul? No one? Surely some people deserve slander. No, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Come on, Paul. This is ridiculous. Let's ask Peter about this whole submission thing. Surely the guy who was flogged by the government for doing the will of Jesus will tell us that, you know, we can kind of do what we want. Peter will tell us to do anything but submit to the dumb governmental rules, right? Peter, what do you think about all this jazz? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 12-15, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Ah, Peter, you too? And I hope that little dialogue made a little bit of sense. So where do we find ourselves here, friends? On the one hand, We have an example of the disciples disobeying a direct order from the government. This is important and noteworthy, but I believe that we first build our theology and practice of the Christian life not on the narrative elements of Scripture, but on the clear commands of Scripture. The only reason we reverse the order today is because Acts 4 is a narrative passage, and that's the passage in our daily Bible reading for the day. When we look at the clear commands of Scripture, for instance, in Romans 13 and Titus and Peter etc., we are faced with an unquestionable call and command to submit to the government. We see in Acts 4 what I believe is the one single exception to this command, in much the same way that Jesus says that adultery is the one exception in marriage that allows for divorce. In Acts 4 and 5, we see the government giving the disciples a command that, if 
followed would directly lead to disobedience to the Lord's command to evangelize in the Great Commission. Thus, it would appear that Christians are told here to submit to God's commands when they are in direct conflict with governmental commands, but to submit to governmental commands otherwise. Practically speaking, what does this mean? Well, as Paul says, it means we pay taxes. It further means that we submit to laws we may not like or agree with. How this plays out practically is kind of a question that's too large in scope for a simple podcast episode like this one, but examples abound right now of applications for this overall principle. Submit to the government unless the government commands us to do something that would directly violate a command of God. So think about the law or order of the government authorities right now that sets you on edge, that inconveniences you that bothers you or that you feel like is an overstepping of their authority, does that command directly cause you to disobey God's commands if you follow it? If it does, then obey God rather than man, as Acts 4 would point us to. Does it not? Then submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every ruling authority, which is what First Peter 2 would tell us. I personally cannot think of a law on the books right now uh, that I know of, or even a new law, that would, if we followed it, cause us in the United States of America, even in California, one of the most left-leaning states in the United States of America, I can't think of a law on the books right now that commands us, that forces us to do something that if we did it, we would disobey the law of God. Now, are there governmental laws that allow us to disobey the law of God? Of course there are. I'm talking about ones that if we obey the law, we will be directly disobeying God's law. In those cases, the word of God is clear. We resist. We don't do that. But those cases, my friends, seem to be very rare of laws in the United States of America. Probably not rare in a lot of places. Rare here. Laws that require us, if we follow them, to disobey the commands of God. So let me ask you a probing question. Are you advocating on social media for disobedience and the opposite of submission to the laws and commands of the governing authorities? If you are, brothers and sisters, you must be sure that the laws you oppose and seek to disobey are laws that, if followed, cause you to disobey God. If they're simply laws you just don't like or disagree with on principle or think overreaches the Constitution or whatever, then allow me to remind you to go read Romans 13 again and 1 Peter 2 and Titus 3, 1 and 2. Look, I'm not talking about my opinion. I'm pointing you to Scripture. Let those Scriptures govern how you and I behave in real life and on social media. One final word. If you know me in real life, you likely know that I'm not a fan of the government in general. Uh, None of the governments, really. And I would like to see much less use of governmental authority. I don't rejoice at being told to wear masks. I don't rejoice to being told that we can't have uh, indoor church services. I'm not pleased every time I see a speed limit sign that tells me, an adult, how fast I can drive. That's my opinion, and it's worth as much as you paid for it. As a man under the authority of God, however, I am joyfully constrained to follow God's way and not my best judgment. 
He's Lord, and therefore I will submit to the governing authorities unless they tell me something that directly contradicts what God's Word commands. Now, I think that is something to ponder. Not my opinion, but I think Christians right now really need to be wrestling with Romans 13 and Romans 14 while we're at it. Um, Very important passages for such a time as this. Romans 13 pointing us to submitting to authorities, governmental authorities. Romans 14 teaching us how to gracefully handle disagreements and not being stumbling blocks to people. Now, allow me to close on a very non-political note, something far more important than politics in one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Acts 4.13. When the Sanhedrin observed the boldness of Peter and John, and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. May such a thing be said of us also. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession. Jacob and his sons, however, went down to Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I defeated Egypt by what I did within it, and afterward I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and you reached the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your ancestors cried out to the Lord, so he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them, engulfing them. Your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. After that, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Later I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You possessed their land, and I annihilated them before you. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he repeatedly blessed you, and I rescued you from him. You then crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Jericho's citizens, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hethites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, fought against you, but I handed them over to you. I sent hornets ahead of you, and they drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land you did not labor for, and cities you did not build, though you live in them. You are eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Therefore, fear the Lord, and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods, for the Lord Our God brought us and our ancestors out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. He also protected us all along the way we went and among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. 
But Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. No, the people answered Joshua, we will worship the Lord. Joshua then told the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves have chosen to worship the Lord. We are witnesses, they said. Then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, we will worship the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem and established a statute and ordinance for them. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He also took a large stone and set it up there under the oak at the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, you see this stone, it will be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words the Lord said to us, and it will be a witness against you so that you will not deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, the Lord's servant Joshua, son of Nun, died at the age of 110. They buried him in his allotted territory at Timnath-Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. Israel worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua and who had experienced all the works the Lord had done for Israel. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. It was an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, which had been given to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. Thus ends the book of Joshua. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1. This is what the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen undergarment and put it on, but do not put it in water. So I bought underwear as the Lord instructed me and put it on. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, Take the wonder underwear that you brought and are wearing and go at once to the Euphrates and hide it in a rocky crevice. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. A long time later, the Lord said to me, Go at once to the Euphrates and get the underwear that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and dug up the underwear and got it from the place where I had hidden it, but it was ruined, of no use at all. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says, Just just like this, I will ruin the great pride of both Judah and Jerusalem. These evil people who refuse to listen to me who follow the stubbornness of their own hearts and who have followed other gods to serve and bow and worship, they will be like this underwear, of no use at all. Just as underwear clings to one's waist, so I fasten the whole house of Israel and Judah to me. This is the Lord's declaration, so that they might be my people for my fame, praise, and glory, but they would not obey. Say this to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every jar should be filled with wine. They, then they will respond to you. Don't we know that every jar should be filled with wine? And you will say to them, This is what the Lord says. I am about to fill all who live in this land, the kings who reign for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the residents of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I will smash them against one another, fathers and sons alike. This is the Lord's declaration. I will allow no mercy, pity, or compassion to keep me from destroying them. Listen and pay attention. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble 
on the mountains at dusk. You wait for light, but he brings darkest gloom and makes total darkness. But if you will not listen, my innermost being will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will overflow with tears, for the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a humble seat, for your glorious crowns have fallen from your heads. The cities of the Negev are under siege. No one can help them. All of Judah has been taken into exile, taken completely into exile. Look up and see those coming from the north. Where is the flock entrusted to you, the sheep that were your pride? What will you say when he appoints close friends as leaders over you, ones you yourself trained? Won't labor pain seize you as they do a woman in labor? And when you ask yourself, why have these things happened to me? It is because of your great guilt that your skirts have been stripped off your body exposed. Can the Cushite change his skin or a leopard his spots? If so, you might be able to do what is good. You who are instructed in evil, I will scatter you like drifting chaff before the desert wind. This is your lot, what I have decreed for you. This is the Lord's declaration because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. I will pull your skirts up over your face so that your shame might be seen. Your adulteries and your lustful neighing. Your depraved prostitution. On the hills and the fields, I have seen your abhorrent acts. Woe to you, Jerusalem. You are unclean. For how long yet? Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. (laughs) See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, Hmm, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. They conferred together and brought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken of through the prophet Jeremiah was filled, fulfilled. They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, You say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked him, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, 
Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. As all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there, facing the tomb. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, 
We remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal him and tell the people, Ooh, he's been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards.